The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Oh, to be young and handsome again. That's back when I used to do the five o'clock shadow, I thought I looked smashing. Anyway, just kidding. Um, <laughs> hey, I will say um, it's exciting for the Mariners to make the playoffs because uh, I, had, I had zero children the last time they made the playoffs. That's how long that it's been for me. I'm like, wow. And then somebody else goes, we were in sixth grade, and they're like full adults with kids and family. Um, so it's been a long time. Um, we're going to be in Acts 9 and Philippians 3. I, I'm going to be in a bunch of places. Those are kind of a couple of the key spots that we'll land today. If you've got a Bible with you, like I said, Acts chapter 9 and then uh, Philippians 3. So quite a ways through uh, your Bible. I've mentioned before that I love creativity. I love to watch people that are gifted at a certain thing um, create whatever it might be, whether it's a great song or uh, you know, even like landscape or artwork or whatever it would be. To me, it's always moving. And, and again, to me, creativity is pretty incredible. Um, and there's a game that's, that's intriguing to me because it's creative and it's kind of mysterious as far as where it leads. You literally never know. Um, has anybody ever heard of the game Bigger and Better? Okay, a couple people, um, and it kind of goes like this. In general, it would be, let's say there's like a, 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 you know, a bunch of kids that have a, a party, they're you know, 13, 14 years old, and, and the, the, the game goes like this. Everybody gets like a pencil, and you have to go door to door around the neighborhood, and you have like an hour to trade up. And the idea is it's always something bigger and something better. And so I've heard stories of that happening at certain parties or whatever, and the kids start with like a pencil, and they end up with like a TV or a bicycle or, you know, whatever. And it's kind of, it's kind of crazy, but there's this version of it that I stumbled upon as I was putting these notes together. And there was a guy in 2005 named Kyle McDonald who wanted to play this game bigger and better. And maybe you've heard of this, but um, he, he, he put together a listing on Craigslist that started with a red paperclip. And he explained what he was doing and said, I want to trade somebody my red paperclip for something bigger and better. And so a gal reached out to him and said, hey, I have a, a, a pen shaped like a fish. I would love to trade you for your red paperclip. So they met and they made the trade. And that was kind of cool. Well, he posted again and said, okay, now I have a, a fish pen and I would love to trade somebody that has some bigger and better. And a guy reached out and said, I have a unique doorknob with a face on it that I would love to trade you. And so traded the pen, the fish pen for the doorknob. And the basics go like this to fast forward, paperclip, fish pen, doorknob, camp stove, full beer keg with a Budweiser neon sign, um, to a snowmobile, to a trip for two to the Rockies. And again, I'll fast forward a bit here, but in 14 trades and having met actor Corbin Bernson, um, headbanger Alice Cooper, a movie producer, uh, all kinds of different people they met along the way, uh, they literally ended up with a house. Red paperclip to a house, and there it is right there. And it's, I mean, again, it's incredible. And if you see, there's the red paperclip. And so I think even today you can go there and there it is and probably is an Airbnb or something like that. But, but how amazing, right? Bigger and better. And, and um, I think we're, you know, it, to me, it's, it's a swap meet on steroids kind of thing. Like, wow, that's incredible. And for thousands of years, history, you know, society, it's been that you trade certain things for something you want. So you have beaver pelts and they have a, you know, a bunch of corn and you trade to get what people need and all kinds of different ways that that's played out over the years. But, but again, um, even now you're sitting there and maybe you're intrigued by the idea. So what we're going to do is to, next week, bring all your stuff and we're, no, okay, we're, no, we're not going to do that. Don't bring your stuff. In fact, we'll have security outside. Like, no, go home. You brought too much stuff. Anyway, um, 
But I, I say it because oddly enough, and you could say this is a strange thing to say, but there's a swap meet that happens in Acts chapter 9 that I want to pinpoint because we're going to talk about a certain individual that was involved in this um, as we get to it. So if you go back to the history of the church, you have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that begins what we call the New Testament. And, and that's the life of Jesus and some of the Christmas story and then, you know, miracles and, and teaching and the crowds, you know, marveling at what's going on here. And little by little, the religious leaders getting upset, and they basically go, let's, let's get rid of him, and the crucifixion, and death, and burial, and resurrection. The Gospels end with Jesus has risen, which is unbelievable, amazing, awesome, and he is the Savior of the world, which is huge. And then as it continues, you have the book of Acts. And Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also writes Acts, and he's writing about the activity of the first century church. I know for some you're like, I already know all this. Not everyone does. So the activity of the early church, and it centers around Peter John, and then you know, you're kind of the apostles, the group, the disciples that had followed Jesus around and stuff, and um, they're, they're preaching about the, the work of the Holy Spirit and, and the New Testament, and, or not New Testament, excuse me, Old Testament, and David, all this stuff, and it kind of centers around what's happening with them, and along the way, there's miracles, and, and, and again, the religious leaders are pretty upset, but there comes a point where the church gets to a certain size where they go, we need some people to, to put on or take on some leadership here. And so they appoint seven individuals that, that uh, can, can sort of lead the organization of these groups of people. And one of those people is a guy named Stephen. And it said he was a, a man that was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And he's performing miracles and he's teaching about Jesus. And the synagogue leaders are jealous and they put him in custody. Now, the synagogue leaders in that day, there were certain groups of them that were judges in certain towns and there were certain cases that would come before them and they would judge what to do, kind of based around the Jewish law. And so Stephen gets put in custody and they're pretty upset because he's talking about Jesus that they had kind of given the approval to have him crucified. Well, here's Stephen, and he shares a message full of history from Abraham to Moses to David and Solomon, and, and he basically, in this message that he preaches, is turning the heat up kind of paragraph by paragraph, and he finally gets to the point where he pulls no punches and reminds them that it was them and their ancestors that are obstinate. They refuse to listen to the truth, and you can imagine they're getting pretty upset as Stephen is sharing this message. Finally, he says, if you would listen, you would find that Jesus is the Messiah, just like John the Baptist tried to tell you. And they get really angry, and, and Stephen has a vision of Jesus and, you know, coming down from heaven in this moment, and he says, you know, I see Jesus, and they get so mad that that's where you pick up in Acts chapter 7. We're going to get to 9, but in Acts chapter 7, it says in verse 57, at this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, they all ran at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Oh, sorry, uh, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of their killing him. So enter stage right, Saul. And here's this guy, Saul, that I want to go into the history of it that some of you know, but here's what happens as chapter 8 continues. On that day, great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. 
But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. As the chapter continues, they focus on a guy named Philip, who was also a leader in the church, and he was performing miracles and preaching about Jesus. And the next part of the story, a guy named Simon the sorcerer gives his life to faith in Jesus, and yet somehow he thinks he can still buy the Holy Spirit, and, and Peter kind of rebukes him, and then it moves back to Philip, and Philip's traveling along a road, and he hears the guy reading Isaiah, and he basically shares the gospel coming from Isaiah 53, and there's an amazing thing that happens there. And then we get to chapter 9, and it says, this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters from the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, who were Christians, that's another way to say, you know, Christianity, the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, to understand in context, not to be extreme here, but to understand in context who Saul or Paul was, he was basically a terrorist. He basically would, would coming from this Jewish sect, and he's going to talk about his history, and we'll get into this here in a little bit, but he was so fired up about his belief that Jesus was not the Messiah that he goes out and he's persecuting the church. He's responsible for having Christians tortured, arrested. He even approves of their death. As Acts 9 continues, and I'm going to skip a little part of it, and I'm going to come back to it. So bear with me here. As Acts 9 continues, it says this. Lord, Ananias answered, and we'll talk about Ananias in a minute. I have heard many reports about this man, all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Fast forward. Acts chapter 9, verse 21. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among, who, among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take as prisoners us to the chief priests? Now fast forward from Acts 9 all the way to 26 for a second. I know I'm jumping around. At the end of Acts, Paul is, is preaching before uh, kings and authorities, and, and, and it's kind of a big deal. And this is Paul saying this. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme or to, to deny Jesus. I was so obsessed with persecuting them, I even hunted them down in foreign cities. This is Paul we're talking about. Now, if you know this at all, Paul wrote a majority of what we call the New Testament. And, and, and you know, from Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, but in Galatians chapter 1 verse 13, he says this, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 4. If someone else think they have, thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. And then he writes to Timothy as he's challenging him to be the next generation of leader in the church. And in 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. 
The reputation of Paul, as you look at all of this text, is he was persecuting the church. He admits he was doing everything he can to destroy this movement that you and I would call Christianity. He had a reputation to the point where when they found out this guy, Paul, has become a believer, the believers were like, no, he didn't really. He's just trying to infiltrate our ranks and figure out who we all really are so he can destroy us. At one point, when Paul ends up with the leadership of the first century church and he's around them, before he goes, they're like, wait a minute, this is the guy that was person. I don't believe it. And they were stunned and shocked and even afraid to come near him until Barnabas goes, no, no, it's for real. This is the guy. Introduce yourselves. He's on our team now. It's an amazing story of a guy with a legacy of literally giving the approval of the murder of Christians, of having them arrested. He had letters of authority to go from synagogue to synagogue and pull out anyone who claimed any connection to Christianity. He would have nothing to do with it. And that was his story until the swap meet in Acts chapter 9. So in Acts chapter 9, I'm going to read, and you're going to hear a little bit of repetition because I'm going to start back at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out, Saul is Paul, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters from the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found anyone there, he belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And this is where it's going to get good. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground. And when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, verse 10, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named uh, Saul from Tarsus, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry the name before to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Swap meet. 
Saul met Jesus and began to swap out his previous legacy. His previous legacy was a murderer, a persecutor, an angry individual, prideful for his own people, but against the way, against Christians. That was who he was known as. And then all of a sudden, in Acts chapter 9, he's at the swap meet. And at the swap meet, something changes drastically. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul puts it this way in verse 4 through 14. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. You want to know what my legacy used to be? There it is, Paul says. You know my reputation? There it is. You know my tradition? There it is. You know my education? There it is. You know all the stuff that, 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 that I was all about in my pedigree? There it is. And multiple times when Paul writes to the church, he brings up his history. And in some books, he goes into even more detail. And it's even more terrible. And then I want you to notice the swap meet in Philippians 3.7. But whatever were gains for me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, and the British version is rubbish. Oh, I consider them rubbish. You're welcome, Tim. I saw your hand up there, my friend from England. He says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead or from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. My brothers and sisters, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining on towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul is talking about the swap meet. Paul is talking about who he used to be. Yes, I'm yelling at you. Yes, you're probably tired of it already. But here's the thing. I'm passionate about this because Paul had one reputation. Paul was known as a murderer, a persecutor, an angry individual, full of himself and, and committed to Judaism until the swap meet. When every thing changed. And all of a sudden he says, that's who I used to be, but what used to be gain, I now consider loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. What is more, listen to me, he says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. When you go back to Judaism and they realized, oh no, this guy that we've given authority to, to persecute the church is now an advocate for the church. What happened to him? Not only did his own people write him off, but they decided, just like they did with Jesus, we need to get rid of him. We need him to be done. We need him to stop what he's doing because it's the opposite of what we sent him to do. 
It's no different in the world that you and I live in. And sometimes in an American context, it doesn't hit as hard. But do you know that there are groups throughout the world today that if you give your life to faith in Jesus, your family will write you off entirely, ignore you, cut you off from any inheritance, do whatever they can to make sure that you get nothing because you betrayed your former religion? Do you know that? And there are even people in an American context, certain groups that if you give your life to faith in Jesus, they don't appreciate it. There are certain groups that will write you off because you're a traitor. And maybe there's people in this room that at a certain point you gave your life to faith in Christ and things were a little different after that with people you cared about. We may not experience it to the degree that other people in our world do or to the degree that Paul does, but what would it be like if today you sit here, and I make such a big deal of this because it is a big deal. I don't know exactly what everybody's legacy in this room is, but I realize there are plenty of us that didn't necessarily have the legacy we wanted back when. I've said before, I didn't grow up in church world. I was born about five miles that way at, at, in Everett. At, it was General Hospital back then, not the soap opera. <laughs> but I was born over there, and I was raised here. And while this is suburbia and I was just a dumb little kid, I tried to destroy this city. My friends and I would go to the Marysville Skaden, which is about 300 yards that way, almost literally. And we would cut out early and we would walk the tracks from here all the way up to where I lived up at 128. And we would buy cartons of eggs from Super Barn. And when that went away, Safeway. And they'd be like, hey, you're buying a lot of eggs tonight. Yeah, we're going to have a big egg thing in the morning. And we walk along the tracks and we would huck eggs at cars on State Avenue all the way along to up north. Many times where the cops were called, we'd be running around. I remember one time I prayed, God, if you get me out of this, I will surrender to you. And I wasn't a church kid. I went to church here and there. I went to Word of Life Lutheran up north. And I remember those midnight candle holding Christmas Eve services like, this is awesome. But it's because I was a pyro. <laughs> I've said before, like when I learned how to make the train track things go down, I thought it was hilarious. There would be traffic jams. My mom came home one time. She was so mad. I couldn't get anywhere. Those dumb train track things kept going down. I'm like, I don't know why. <laughs> we'd, we'd sneak out in the middle of the night and steal chromies and hood ornaments. If, if somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s, you had one of them stolen, I probably owe you. I might still have it in my garage somewhere. Just kidding, I don't. And, and while those are silly examples, it's, it's kind of poignant for me to think that, wow, I did all I could to be kind of a punk in the city. And again, it wasn't crazy extreme stuff, but just dumb. And here I am today going, what does it look like for you and I to look at changing the trajectory of our communities? How funny, right? I'm no, I'm no Paul, I get that. But I will tell you in May of 1992, my life was changed in this building when I had a real encounter with Christ. And it's been 30 plus years now. And I can't even believe what God can do with a life. And I'm not saying I'm perfect. I don't always get it right. There's people in here like, you're still in a year of hypocrite. I get it. I'm trying to be like Jesus, but I haven't nailed it yet. It's like what Paul says. I haven't attained it all. I haven't been made perfect yet. I haven't arrived, but that's good news for all of us. I remember it. And again, part of my story, it's just my story. But my deal was when I, when I didn't know Christ, it was like, man, I just want to entertain people someday. That's what I want to do. I've said before, my goal, graduate Marysville Pilchuck, drive down to SoCal, bus tables, pay for a cheap apartment, and audition as much as I could until something popped. And, and the passion for me wasn't so much, wow, you can be famous or you can make a lot of money. I, my burden literally as a kid, I remember this. 
I just want to make people feel lighter about life. I love the idea that you can turn on a sitcom and you know you've got about 30 minutes to escape from the responsibility, right? Or, or you, could, you, know, you, you could watch a movie for an hour and a half, two hours back then. I'm thinking, I'd love to do that because you can kind of get away and just enjoy it. And, of course, you got to leave the theater and go back to real life, but at least I could do that. And then when I gave my life to Christ, something changed. And I'm not, I, please don't, I wasn't perfect. I'm still more on all that stuff. But I began to read and study the scripture a lot. And as the lights began to come on in, in my soul, after having surrendered to Jesus after about a year, year and a half into this, what began to process in me was, man, if this Jesus thing is real, it really is better than just a movie for an hour and a half. Like that's like hope every day. That's like life all the time. That's like this work of the spirit that, that can comfort, that can encourage, that can set us free that can provide this life of meaning every day here and then into eternity because of what Jesus has done. And I literally went, you know what? Maybe I need to be about that. And I asked my youth pastor, and he literally goes, you're going to make a great youth pastor someday. And I asked my girlfriend's dad, what do you think? He goes, I, I could see you doing ministry. She's my wife now. But, but why, why do I bring all that up? Not to make myself look good, but it's amazing that on one hand I had a legacy. And it's pretty cool, and sure, I was only 17 back in the day, but, but it's pretty cool to go, wow, God, you've been so faithful. And I'm not perfect by any means, but just like what Paul says to, to, to the church at Philippi, not that I have already obtained all this, but I've traded out what's in the past. I've given up what's in the past. And for some of you, I want to challenge you. I don't know your legacy, but maybe it's not what you want it to be. Maybe you think back and go, hey, I've lived 40 years or 50 or 60 or whatever years, and I believe, by the way, it's never too late. But that for anybody to go, what would my legacy be if it were done today? And are you okay? Which is what I said last week. Are you good with that? See, Saul, Paul had a legacy, and it didn't start out amazing. But when he gave himself in surrender, he says, for whatever were gains for me, and he was rising up in the ranks, he says at certain points, beyond others of his own age. Like he was known. They're like, this guy's going to go places in Judaism. That's a big deal. And he says, I, I gave it all up for the sake of knowing Christ. You want to talk about legacy? You want to talk about the challenge that hits you and I right between the eyes? Are you there? He says, I, I had all of it. And for you and I, it's not Judaism. Most of us, probably any of us. But it may be that you're climbing the ladder at work. It may be that your paycheck's getting bigger and bigger. It may be that, that, that things are going well and you're buying the stuff and the toys all, and that, whatever. But Paul says, you and I ought to be challenged to be at the point where our greatest passion is Christ and everything else flows from that. You want to climb a ladder? Do it through the lens of who Christ is because it changes how you climb. He says, I, I, I set that all aside. And that's a challenge for every one of us. He talks about embracing his Christ-centered future. And then he moves into this whole idea of, uh, not that I have already obtained it all. I was talking with someone in the lobby earlier, and I love that picture because I, I know I've said it before, but, but maybe it doesn't really resonate yet. It's amazing to think how we'll never have arrived until we're done here. I don't care what age you are. You will never have arrived as a follower of Jesus, which means there's always transformation to be had. There's always ways that you and I can be challenged in our faith. 
There's always things God is doing. And that shouldn't make us go, I'll never have arrived. This is terrible. It's really meant to help us understand, like, this is an ongoing adventure, right? He's just forgetting what is behind and straining on towards what is ahead. He says, I press on toward the goal. There are things in front of you in Christ that, that, that God wants to do to continue to shape you, to continue to bring life to you, to continue to challenge you, to continue to move you towards accomplishing the things that only he has for you. But it comes only in a place where you and I live in surrender. You and I go, here's what my legacy used to be, but here's what it can be. And for some of you, you're known as being angry. Some of you, you're known as going around and around the mountain of addiction. Some of you, it's bitterness and stuff you hold on to. For some of you, it's, there's all kinds of examples of how it plays out. God is not done with you yet, but I want to challenge you through the work of the Spirit to not think for a second you've arrived. I want to challenge you to go, you know what? While I may have gone around and around this mountain, I'm done today, and I want to draw the line in the sand. Not that you've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but you forget what is behind and strain on towards what is ahead. That's the work of the Spirit in us that brings life, that brings hope, that brings strength, that gives us the ability to overcome. Are you with me today? You're like, would you talk quieter and slower, please? I can't help it. I'm so passionate about this because it is an amazing, fulfilling life. Doesn't mean it's always easy. Doesn't mean it's perfect. Doesn't mean you're not going to trip over yourself. Doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. It's part of what, when you study this out, it's part of what Paul is saying. You'll never have arrived. Be gracious with yourself. But you know what? Other people won't have arrived either. Be gracious with them. How many sermons do you want? That's like a whole other message. What am I doing? Why do I go through the trouble to paint a picture like this? Because Paul swapped his legacy for a better one. He was a persecutor, he was angry, and he was prideful. And then he became a preacher that was grace-filled and had humility. And it's amazing the difference. God is in the business of rewriting our legacy. But you and I have got to embrace it. We've got to believe it. It's our passion, and I don't say this, oh, it sounds good on stage. Listen to me carefully. It is our passion to walk this journey together. Some of you, there was, we had over 40 people come to membership on Tuesday night. Some of you heard us talk about this. And it's not empty words that's supposed to make you feel good. It's this, when you, when you have a wedding, or you have an anniversary, or there's a birthday, or there's some milestone in your life you're celebrating, we get to celebrate with you. That's awesome. Way to go. Congratulations. That's incredible. And when you lose someone, you're going through the heartache of loss, the grief of the finality of death sometimes. In the next two weeks, we have two memorials that we're going to mourn with you. And we're going to walk this journey together because that's what we do. In, in, in membership, it's, we literally say it this way. We partner with you on your life journey. And I, that's a flowery way to say it, but it's true. That, that even as a, as a team and, and as a church, there's about 20 of us that, that you know, kind of do this for a living and some part-time, some full-time. But one of the things that I commit to, I say, look, I don't want you just to be here to sort of do ministry and then be done someday. My goal, and this goes for the board as well, I said, my goal is to sharpen you and make you better so that wherever you go and whatever you do beyond this moment, that you've become a better leader, that you become a better follower of Jesus, that you become a better husband or wife or dad or mom, 
that the way that you're, again, part my, I say, what I want to do is help you get to the next chapter of your life, whatever that looks like, connected, here, or maybe not. Like I said, in the same way, for me, I go, man, what does it look like as a church body to walk this journey together? And, and just some examples. But, but this is like we, we do life groups and we want you to get connected. That's huge. And I want to challenge you to take a step. You can always go to the hub and sign. You can always go on the app or at grove.church and check it out and, and get connected. But it's also why we do things like uh, we talk about classes. One of the things we believe passionately is discipleship in general in the Christian faith has been lacking. And we got to figure this out. Not just mean us, but, but, but us too. And so we go, let's do some, we've done some classes in the past, and that's why we do foundation. We do foundations is happening starting next week, and the whole idea is simply this. Maybe you're not solid on what a Christian believes. When I started in this faith thing 30 years ago, I didn't know much of anything about anything. All I know is, wow, Jesus is real and I need to surrender. That's it. And I had all kinds of individuals along the way help me. And in the same way, I want to challenge you. Maybe you're not really sure. What, what is it? What is it? This belief? What is it? And we want to help you with that. Or, or maybe it helps you explain your faith to those that are around you that wonder, like, you go to church, right? What is that about? You can help explain it. Or maybe it's those individuals that come knocking on your door that have some version that's maybe close to your faith, but it's not. And you can understand the differences. It's why we would offer a foundations class. And I want to challenge you. If that's something you need, it starts next week, and you can sign up. It's why, too, we offer Financial Peace University. And for some of you that don't even know what that is, you go, I don't know, understand. Here's the deal. We talk about stewardship all the time, and I feel the weight of it all the time. And part of it is we talk about our gifts and the time and relationships, and those are huge. But, but money is part of our world, part of our lives. And Scripture talks about we're stewards, but how do you and I live responsibly with the resources that we've been given? And what does that look like? And Financial Peace University is meant to help you understand that. Some of you getting out of being buried in debt or, or what debt can do and being careful, know that. Budgeting. Some of you don't know how to live on a budget. I don't say that to insult anybody. But to realize certain comes in, certain goes out, but you're not really sure. Okay, hold on. What does it look like for you to manage it? For you to tell it where to go instead of it just going? And for you to learn what does it look like to walk out generosity as a follower of Christ? Financial peace. If you haven't signed up and you go, financially, we're just kind of, we just pay bills and it's like, no, 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 that's not Okay consider looking at that kind of stuff. Why don't we bring it up? And we change topics all the time throughout the year, but the whole idea is how do we help you become a better version of a Jesus follower? It's our passion, and I feel it all the time, it's our passion to help you become who you're meant to become. Paul says, not that I have already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What he says is, Jesus has extended his grace towards me. I've got to grab onto it and ride that thing. That's what he's saying, basically. And then he says, brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have arrived, to have taken, I'm, I'm, I'm not landed already, but one thing I do. My old legacy is in the past. I'm moving forward, not going to be a victim of that anymore. I'm moving forward, allowing the Spirit to do something in me. I'm moving forward. He says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. A fancy way of saying I'm living my life in surrender in a way that gives me the kind of purpose that he has for me. And then he says this, and all who are mature should take that kind of view. And if at some point you think different, God will make it clear to you. But let's live up to what we've already attained. In other words, let's live up to what we already know about our faith.
What does it look like for you to change your story? What does it look like for you to live a better story? Maybe today in this room, it's a swap meet. Here's my legacy today. If it were undone today, here it is. And for some of you go, there's some things that need to change. And I'm gonna pray with you in a minute. And for some of you, it's like, I'm on this journey. I'm, I'm pressing on and I wanna pray for you because perseverance is challenging. Over and over, it's even one of the fruit of the Spirit. Long-suffering, our ability to continue on the journey when we get bored, when we feel passive, when we feel the pull of temptation, when we want to bail because we're stressed out or whatever it would be. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll be done today. God, you know where we're at. And our legacy, for some in this room, it's time to swap legacies. It's time to say, God, I need you to help me overcome this. I need to lay this before you. And, and there are ways that we can sit and live in regret and we shoulda, coulda, woulda, or whatever. But I pray today we begin to grab onto what you've designed for us. That you have a better life. It doesn't mean it's always easier. In fact, it's not. It doesn't mean everything goes well or right. It doesn't mean we don't trip over ourselves and have to backpedal and go, Jesus, forgive me today. But God, it means that we're surrendered to the kind of living that creates the right legacy. And it's meant to be a Christ-centered legacy. I pray that that conviction would land in our hearts. I pray that you would reveal in any one of us, hey, here's part of your legacy that, that you don't want. You get angry a lot, or you don't forgive very well, or you're not very honest, or you got this addiction you're trying to hide, or this pattern. Or, God, I pray he'll be willing to bring these things to you even now. And I also pray, as, as we're trying to live out the right kind of legacy, Holy Spirit, fill us fresh. Give us a fresh strength to draw that line and go, I'm not giving in. The apathy, I'm not buying into. The temptation, I'm not going to fall prey to. I'm going to persevere. And I pray even now for your spirit to rise up in every single heart. That perseverance, the character, that long suffering, that that passion, that, strength, that zeal in us is not based on just feeling it, God. But it's that commitment to draw near and follow you because that's what you want in all of us. Jesus, we need you. Help us to continue to write a better story like Paul, giving up all those things in the past that were hindrances and straining on towards a Christ-centered future. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.